0: According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me in Matthew 22. Matthew 22. I think we'll spend most of our time in Matthew. Uh, It's longer than the Mark and Luke parallels. Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46. We will briefly look at the other parallel accounts just for comparison to bring in a couple of details or some expressions that Mark uses that are unique, uh, but uh, the the most complete version of this uh, episode is to be found in Matthew 22. All right, before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to assure that distractions are set aside, and that we are humble under the authority of truth, shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you this morning, thankful for the truth of your word, thankful to have one more day. And Father, as we learned this morning, that's, uh, we're not promised today. It's a day-by-day thing, Father. You could take any one of us to heaven any morning, Father. So we uh, are reminded that on a daily basis we're to acknowledge your grace, we're to be humble before your plan. And Father, we just thank you that you've allowed us to be here today. We uh, ask for you to be faithful in the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit as we uh, study to show ourselves approved. We thank you for our Savior. We thank you for his commitment to teaching. And Father, uh, we've seen several episodes already where he used the Word of God to face his temptations to uh, defeat his enemies. And uh, today we're going to see another example of that. So uh, teach us today what we need to learn, not only to fulfill your plan, but to greater appreciate how awesome and wonderful your son truly is we thank you father in jesus Christ's most precious and holy name amen all righty i have no paper notes to teach from this morning so i'm just going to follow the slideshow and we'll see we'll see what comes up (laughs) we're uh, dealing with episode nine in the uh, life of christ Um, each of the segments of his ministry has been broken down into other uh, developments and so we are in not really the, even the last one. The uh, final week of work at Jerusalem is going to be followed by the resurrection through the ascension. Remember, there's 40 days of ministry after the uh, resurrection. So 13 episodes there in, uh, in that phase of ministry. But there are 41 episodes to deal with in the final week of work. So uh, we're dealing with number 9 out of the 41. If you need a copy of that, we'll get that to you at the end of class. But we're dealing with Jesus and David in this episode, so let's take a look at it. Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46. Uh, Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, and this is a quotation from Psalm 110, and we're going to spend a bit of time in Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Excellent question. (laughs) All right. And so no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Let's go to, uh, let's do Luke next, Luke 20, 41 through 44, and then we'll come back to Mark. And then we'll probably spend our time in Matthew for the rest of the hour. But Luke chapter 20, 41 through 44. In both the Matthew account we just read and in the Luke account, uh, the order of these events is all the same. Um, He has a dispute with the Pharisees, with the Sadducees about the resurrection. And then uh, the Pharisees get uh, excited and they try to um, build on that by asking something else. It is interesting. The, um, the statement we just read about not daring to ask any more questions is actually given one verse earlier than verse 41. You'll spot it there in verse 40. Uh, they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. And so then in verse 41, it details the Lord then has a question for them. So he said to them, how is it that they say the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, David calls him Lord. And how is he his son? And look at the reaction of the crowd now. And um, which I'm sorry, we don't see in Luke. We got to turn over to. Uh, Mark to get that. Mark 12, 35-37. Mark 12. So in Luke, the statement of the uh, the fear for asking more questions comes before this episode. In uh, Matthew, it comes after this episode, but it's not really a reconciliation issue, so we're not concerned about that. Mark 12, 35-37. Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And David himself said in the Holy, in the Holy Spirit or by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at uh, my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And here's the crowd's reaction. The large crowd enjoyed listening to him. And you wonder what was so enjoyable. <laughs> it 's it 's not debatable that they enjoyed it. Uh, what we can debate is what was it that they found to be enjoyable? Was it the wisdom of his teaching? was it the uh, the simplicity of how he handled the exegesis? Was it how he shut the Pharisees up? <laughs> you know uh, what was it that they enjoyed as far as uh, as far as it goes we don 't know we don 't know but there is a difference between the large crowd and the pharisees and that's what we want to handle here today all right first issue we want to understand is that we've had a string of challenging questions ever since paul monday there have been a string of challenging questions in these first nine episodes okay and he brings them to an end jesus ends the string of challenging questions with a question of his own and it's a question that the pharisees will not answer we see it described here that they have no answer for him. Both Mark 12:34 and Matthew 22:46 say that they will not answer. No one was able to answer him a word. And it's kind of interesting. We use the same idiom uh, where we can say no one is able to answer. And the fact of the matter is, the, the true reality is that no one wanted to answer. Okay? They have the physical capabilities to open their mouth and to expel air across their vocal cords they can they can speak they just won't bring themselves to do so uh, because to do so would violate their uh, presupposition in some different respects so he ends the string of challenging questions with a question of his own that the pharisees will not answer and it comes back to this son of david issue and it comes back to his very claim of being the Christ, of being the Messiah, and of being God, his own claims to deity, when he says, I and the Father are one. And when he says, before Abraham was born, I am, and all of his claims to deity. And so uh, they're going to try to accuse him of being a blasphemer and accusing him of being a false teacher and all the rest. Well, it's not blasphemy if it's true. Okay, uh, If you and I claim to be God, then we'd be blaspheming. But if God claims to be God, it's not blasphemy. It's, it's truth. All right. And so uh, his defense against blasphemy is to demonstrate that, yes, he is true in everything that he says, accurate in every scripture that he exegetes, and that his claim to be God as the Christ is not a violation of scripture because scripture itself declares that the Messiah is God. And that's uh, even the Pharisees had to acknowledge that, which is what leaves them speechless here. Their own theology is in agreement. They have the same uh, interpretation of Psalm 110 that he has of Psalm 110. The remarkable thing is even Judaism to this day accepts the messianic nature of Psalm 110, which is, I find, remarkable. There's other passages like Isaiah 53 and some others that post-Christian Judaism has kind of reinterpreted. They don't accept that Isaiah 53, for example, is messianic. They used to. They don't anymore. All right. Uh, we look at Isaiah 53 and say, well, of course, it's messianic. What are you talking about? Uh, Psalm 110, we see as messianic. Psalm 2, we see as messianic. And, uh, and even in the post-Christian realms of Judaism, they still acknowledge Psalm 2 and Psalm uh, 110 as being messianic, applying to the Messiah. And so we'll see that this morning as well. In Matthew's account, Jesus asks a two-part question. And uh, as soon as the Pharisees answered the first question, they were doomed. (laughs) All right. with the Pharisees first answer, answer, leaving them unable to provide the second answer. And that's the way it's presented here in the narrative that Matthew records. As soon as they say, when he says, whose son is the Christ? Who or who is the Christ? Uh, no, whose son? That's the question. When you think about, uh, what do you think about Messiah? Of course, Christos is Greek, Christ. Mashiach is Hebrew. Uh, it's the same word. Whether you want to call him the Christ or call him the Messiah or call him the Anointed One. Who do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Well, he's the son of David. And any Pharisee on earth will tell you that. Uh, I don't know, you might recall some of the earlier conflicts. Um, they really took issue with his son of man title. They 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 hated him for that son of man title. And they talk about son of David, who's going to remain forever. Well, who's the son of man, you say, must be lifted up? And so they um, they did a lot of conflict earlier in different episodes related to son of uh, man. I think uh, John 8, and I've got some notes, if I could look at them. we got some notes coming up on John 8 that will address some of that here shortly. Um, and of course, We we understand from our perspective in hindsight and with a New Testament revelation that uh, he is the son of David and the son of man and the son of God. And uh, he has all of the rights and privileges associated with every title that's properly assigned to him and all of these applications. So as soon as they answer son of David, he's got them. Because then he goes to Psalm 110, written by David, talking about the Christ. And, uh, And David calls him Lord. So how does he call him Lord? In what way is he Lord? And if he's Lord, how is he then his son? And uh, what does he mean by Lord? And what does he mean by son? And how, how do the two reconcile? Notice, Jesus will not allow and David will not allow uh, to fall into an either or trap. It's a both and. He is both Lord and son. So how do we reconcile both truths so that, uh, that every passage of Scripture is properly um, applied Now, the Mark and Luke accounts are slightly different in how they're recorded. They're not contradictory in any way. Uh, They don't don't describe this as a two-part question. They describe it as a single unanswerable how question. How is the son of David also his Lord? Which is identical to the second part of Matthew's two-part question. So it's not a conflict. It's just a, a, a distinction in how they recorded the confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. So in the accounts of Mark and Luke, the encounter is described as a single, unanswerable how question in Mark twelve, thirty five and Luke twenty forty one. And I think I've said this before also. I enjoy doing this. I, I, I've done this more and more lately, and maybe I'll I'll even increase it in the future. Um, in terms of I, I have a personal faith conviction that, that doesn't like to debate. All right. I don't I don't want to debate Calvinists. I don't want to debate Arminians. I don't want to debate um, uh, just different folks. All right. Because it's not my place. I'm commended to feed my my sheep. All right. So where is the scribe? Where is the wise man? Where is the debater of this age? I I feel like like that's not my responsibility. So I don't I don't debate. But if if people want to uh, ask questions or if people want to, you know, If they want answers for how they can sort it out, okay, I'll give them questions. They can, uh, so leave them with a question. How is he his son? And let them work it out. <laughs> okay? Uh, what does Psalm 110 verse 1 really say? The Lord said to my Lord. okay, Or God, your God, has anointed you. you know, how do you deal with that? Where you're speaking to God and telling God that his God, you know, God, your God, will anoint you. How do you deal with that all right, and just leave it with them and say, uh you know, wrestle with the scriptures, search the scriptures, see what see what these things are and uh and uh and then maybe. If uh, the Holy Spirit leads them into the Scriptures to the same convictions and understanding I have in the Scriptures, then we'll have a basis for for further conversation, you know. Uh, But that way, it doesn't come down to a debate. It's not an argument. I'm not trying to talk them into anything. I'm not trying to show them they're wrong. I'm not trying to say, you know, because there's things I got. I'm not right about. I got to I got to fix the things that are wrong with me too, you know. So we're all going to the Scriptures. We're all getting convicted. We're all seeing things we didn't see last year, and all the rest. So. Um, the Lord does this. Just ask them a question. How? How is he his son? And um, let them work it out. Deal with it. If you don't, the scriptures will deal with you. (laughs) That's the the wonderful thing about it. All right. Jesus exegeted. Remember back in episode 7, Jesus exegeted Exodus 3.6 to silence the, the Sadducees. Remember that? So arguments or debates or discussions just take it to the text a passage say he is the god of abraham isaac and jacob not he used to be he is the god of abraham isaac and jacob he's not the god of the dead but the living and he used that present tense is uh to prove that uh that there is a resurrection and and all the things that the sadducees had hang-ups about and he, he really hangs the whole discussion on is versus was. He didn't, God didn't used to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. They are alive. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're with the Lord today. And so that exegesis of Exodus 3.6 is what he used in episode 7 there to silence the Sadducees. Now Jesus will exegete Psalm 110 verse 1 to silence the Pharisees. He takes it back to the text and he brings out a detail from the text. You know, was it any different than what he did in the temptations in the wilderness? The, the devil said, oh, you've got to be hungry here. Command that these stones become bread. Jesus says, "Nope." Deuteronomy, <laughs> man shall not live by bread alone. I think in, in responding to testing, it wasn't so much of an exegesis to Prove something to, to the adversary. But it was definitely it was an application. It was a quotation. It was a, a recognition that, nope, this is the principle I'm going to apply. And so the Lord is always taking things back to Scripture. Always taking it back to Scripture. And uh, that's a pattern I think we need to imitate more frequently. But beyond silencing the critical voice, and I admit there's a certain benefit to that, you know, if you silence your critics, then, you know, what's the benefit? Well, you don't have to listen to them for a while, okay? Uh, maybe they'll come back. Maybe it'll take them a few days to come back with their next goofy complaint or whatever. But So there's a benefit to silencing your critics, and I can appreciate that. But that's not the ultimate goal, is it? God doesn't equip us with Scripture so that we can silence our critics, we're not told to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ so you can win arguments or so you, can, you can win debates or so you, uh, you can thwart the adversary in, in different things. I mean, that's almost, almost like a side effect. The, uh, the, the defend, when you defend the truth, you're giving those folks the opportunity. Uh, such defense of the truth ought to spark a humble acceptance of the word. Ought to. Spark a humble acceptance of the Word. And whatever the enjoyment that's described here in the Matthew record, they enjoyed listening to Him. Um, I hope it was uh, it was a legitimate appreciation, humble acceptance of the Word. Uh, we were told elsewhere that the crowds were amazed because He spoke with authority. He 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 was a teacher unlike any they'd ever heard before. He was unlike their scribes or their Pharisees or any Bible teacher they'd ever had. He spoke with authority. He wasn't... Uh, he wasn't wishy-washy in his approach. He said, this is doctrine. This is what the Word of God says. It is written. To me, those, that little phrase, three little words in English, one word in Greek, it is written, to me, is, is awesome. Because that's our, that's our rock. That's our assurance. You know, the the bills are stacking up. It is written. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Right? Or uh, a little two-year-old baby burns himself in a terrible thing and, you know, well, it is written. i not tempt you beyond that what you're able to bear. Okay? You just start claiming promises. You just start occupying with Christ. You just start um, just start living in the Word. You should be living in the Word anyway, but when those moments happen, it is written. Okay? It is written. It has been written and it stands eternally as a written eternal truth. And um, I think that's the ultimate goal here. And who knows if one or two or however many in the crowd actually says, you know, wow, he's right. The Messiah is God. The Messiah is David's Lord. David's son and David's Lord. And, um, well, it's an opportunity there for for faithfulness. And uh, so there it is. Now, let's look at Psalm 110. Let's uh, flip back there and take a look at it. I'll give you a couple of principles before we actually start detailing the text itself. Psalm 110. Short little psalm. There's only seven verses. This will probably be one of the dinner table conversations here shortly. I require my children, and Sharon too for that matter, um, everybody has to read a, a Bible chapter. During the day. And then when we sit down for dinner, I ask, okay, what chapter did you read today? We have an opportunity to talk about it, right? And so now I'm telling stories. Uh, Sharon actually started with the Psalms, and she's working her way through the Psalms chapter by chapter. And, and Christopher started with Genesis 1, and now he's up to Genesis 30. You know, we've been doing this about a month now. Um, <laughs> my daughters decided that they would just find the shortest chapters they could. <laughs> So they did Psalm 117, which had like two verses or something, and then Second John and Third John, and uh, all right, girls. But see, no, they're not allowed to repeat, so it's all going to get longer from here And every chapter. Okay, read a chapter, read a chapter, and even the short ones are still God-breathed and profitable. So read a chapter, and we'll keep building the pattern and building the pattern, and there we go. So I expect Psalm 110 is going to show up very quickly. At the dinner table, because it's only seven verses long. It's fairly short. Um, And it's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. We've already read verse one several times because we read it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, didn't we? Uh, But notice, it is a Psalm of David. Don't ignore that. Um, Something to be careful for in these Psalms Uh, you may have publishing blurbs, depending on what you're reading. If you're reading a New American Standard Bible by the Lachman Foundation, or you're reading a New King James Bible by different publishing houses. There, if you're reading an NIV, or you read whatever you're reading, is going to have a publisher that may put little uh, headings. They're called pericope headings. Okay, like mine says, uh, "The Lord gives dominion to the king." Right? That's not Bible. That's a publishing blurb that they put in there. All right, but where it does say a Psalm of David, that actually is in the Hebrew manuscripts, all right? And depending on, they're they're worked in in different ways. Usually they're included as verse 1 of the psalm. Sometimes they're the entirety of verse 1, and then what we normally have of verse 1 is is actually in Hebrew verse 2, okay? Uh, Sometimes like here, it's combined, it's short enough, it's combined. The psalm of David, the Lord said to my Lord, it's all combined into a single verse 1 in the Hebrew manuscript. But it is a psalm of David, we'll talk about that. The Lord said to my Lord, so there it is. And we're going to talk about the different words for Lord because there's two words here for Lord. And, uh, and what does it mean? Why is it significant that David calls his own son Adonai? What does it mean that Jehovah is speaking to Adonai? And what does it mean? How do these connect with each other? How do we understand these? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Operation footstool. how One pastor called it years ago. The Lord will stretch forth, that's Yahweh, Jehovah, will stretch forth your, Adonai's, strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord, that's Yahweh again, Jehovah has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. I just realized I wanted... Okay. I wanted to make sure I had my Bible software up in We're going to look at something here in a moment. And then uh, it goes on. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of His wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Okay. Excellent. Excellent psalm. First of all, Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. You would think it would be Psalm 23, right? Or you would think it would be, it's not a short one, or it would be Psalm 119. Man, here's a psalm that's 176 verses long. There ought to be more New Testament quotes there, shouldn't there? Well, No. Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, even though it's only seven verses long. There are more New Testament quotations and allusions. Uh, And interestingly enough, they all come from verse 1 and verse 4. They all come from the uh, sit at my right hand, enemies a footstool, or they come from uh, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Those two verses have more New Testament quotes than any other psalm we have in the 150 psalms in the book of psalms secondly well let me let let me show you those quotations and allusions and this is where there we go and we'll maximize this almost stretches across at home, I put it on the, the widescreen HD resolution to really get left and right. Yeah, I don't know if I can shrink that. Probably not. Okay. Psalm 110.1, Matthew 22.44, which we just read, uh, along with its Mark and Luke parallels. But it's going to come back in Matthew as well, in Matthew 26.64. And... Um, In one of his trials here where Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. At the right hand of power. And coming on the clouds of heaven. Okay? That is the present session of Jesus Christ at God the Father's right hand. And then returning in the second advent, coming on the clouds of heaven. Um, It's interesting that sitting at the right hand of power, okay, that's not a direct quotation, but it's what's called an allusion, A-L-L-U-S, where something is alluded to, okay? Not an illusion where you're imagining things, but an allusion where something is alluded to. And uh, it's important you can identify both quotations and allusions in the New Testament back to where they come from in the Old Testament revelation. And so we have that there. I think that the session of Jesus Christ is the most neglected of all the ministries of our Savior, uh, and which is unfortunate because that's what he's doing right now. That's what, that's what he's doing now as head of the church, seated at the Father's right hand. And we just kind of think that, well, okay, he, he died, he was raised, he was ascended, he's sitting up there, and he's just kind of doing nothing right now while he's waiting to come back at rapture and come back at second advent. But that's not true. His session has already been twice as long as the millennium is going to be. His session has already borne more fruit than he did in three and a half years of earthly ministry, right? You know, you think about where Christ went during his earthly ministry, when he was um, monopresent in one body, in one human body, walking around with his disciples and going places and doing things. Well, now he's in the bride of Christ. He is in each one of us. He's all over this planet, in every country on earth, where the bride of Christ is presently ministering. And Jesus Christ has done more in his session, uh, you know, walking in the midst of the lampstands, holding the stars in his right hand, working through the local churches. I think the session needs to be understood better. It's addressed, first of all, in Psalm 110, verse 1, sit at my right hand while the Father does the work of uh, footstool preparation. All right, Mark 12 is our parallel to today's text in Matthew 22, but it's going to come back again in Mark 14. It's going to come back again in Mark 16. So, um, Mark 16 is the ending of one of the endings in the Gospel of Mark uh, when Jesus, it's kind of hard to read in these columns, isn't it? So, when uh, the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And I think of all the Ascension narratives, that's my favorite, uh, even though I don't think it's legitimate to the, to the Mark manuscript. It's part of the longer ending of Mark. Um, I think Mark 16 should end at verse 8. Anyway, it is a, uh, it is a good uh, testimony to the session of Jesus Christ. Uh, Luke 20 is parallel to what we're looking at today. It's going to come back again in Luke 22, verse 69. Uh, it's going to come back in Acts 2 when Peter gives his first sermon. On the day of Pentecost, there is going to come back. And uh, let's look at that. Let's look at Acts 2 while we're here. And this is the day of Pentecost, and Peter is going to take his stand. They think everybody's all drunk because they're uh, full of sweet wine. They can't understand why all these Galileans are speaking in all these languages. And uh, to me, drunkenness does not produce uh, the instantaneous knowledge of foreign languages, <laughs> you know. I'm not going to admit to any drunkenness in my past, certainly not on a Wednesday morning in front of my congregation and, and not uh, on tape where I'm going to be heard across the Internet. But if if maybe there was a, an episode in my past where that kind of a thing might have happened, I did not spontaneously learn a foreign language to communicate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Peter, taking a stand, said, no, they're not drunk. The Holy Spirit has come. These men have new power. There's a whole message here. Now, look at all the scripture he quotes from Joel in verses 17 through 21 of Acts 2. And then he builds on it. It goes beyond that in verse 22. And uh, starts talking about how Jesus uh, was testified by the father. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Boom. See that right there? So that ends the argument. Was it the Jews? Was it the Gentiles? Was it who you know, who, who crucified Christ? All of the above, but they did so because God the Father in his predetermined plan So loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So both Jews and Gentiles were complicit in fulfilling God's plan to get this done. Uh, But God raised him up again. Death was in the end, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And of course, we just had Easter Sunday, the the, uh, holiday whereby we commemorate that now. More Old Testament quotations, you'll notice. For David says of him in verses 25 through 28, and uh, the issues here that relate to the promise of the anticipated resurrection and the fact that uh, those weren't promises to David, those were promises to the Christ, not allowing uh, his soul to be abandoned or uh, the Holy One to undergo decay and things of that nature. Now notice how he makes the application on this. He says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Okay? Go bust open that tomb and the corpse is still there. So uh, this promise was not literally fulfilled in, uh, in David. But because he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, the Messiah, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. And this is fundamentally what every apostle was, an eyewitness of the ministry and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, there's an allusion to the Psalm 110 we're studying, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this, which you both see in here. Now, keep in mind, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this whole coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost could not have happened if Jesus Christ wasn't seated at the right hand of the Father. That he had to, first of all, himself receive the promise of the Holy Spirit to then pour forth upon the Bride of Christ, to, for, for, to form the church here on Pentecost. So... uh it was necessary for him first to be seated at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's why in John it says both, in one place it says that Jesus will send the Holy Spirit and a chapter later it says the Father will send the Holy Spirit. Okay, They're both sending the Holy Spirit in the sense that the Father, first of all, is providing that gift to his Son at his right hand and then Jesus Christ is sending the Holy Spirit to his bride. He has poured forth this, which you both see in here. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In this, uh, we have the reference here on the day one of the church age. Okay, this is an important doctrine for us to understand because this is our uh, that's that's our Lord. That's our husband. We need to understand how we function in the heavenly places. So therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So the both and, it's important. We want to understand that the Lord was telling the Pharisees, how is he then his son? How does David call him Lord? How does the both and work? Answer them both. And uh, the Pharisees can't. Because the minute they say, well, okay, he's also God, then they're face-to-face with God, right? And they're trying to kill him. They're trying to crucify him. They're trying to accuse him of blasphemy. And if he's truly God, then it's not blasphemy. So since they've already have the conclusion in their mind where they want to go, they want to go to his death, they want to go to his rejection, they can't admit the truth that uh, the Christ is also God, so we'll come back uh, again in the New Testament, Romans 8:34, One of our favorite eternal security passages, right? Slide this across here. Well, look at that. It takes two whole s- screens to... At home, I can get it all on one white screen. Okay, Romans 8:34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Who also intercedes for us. Now there is a treasure. No dispensation prior to the church has ever had the advocate that we have. The intercessor that we have. A risen Savior. A head seated at the right hand of the Father. Right there to intercede for us on our behalf. Israel never had that. The Gentiles never had that. The angels never had that. This is a privilege for the bride. the, The royal family of God. The church. Our head. Is right there at the right hand of the Father. And we're positionally at the right hand of Christ. And so his session is vital for us to understand in our prayer ministry. Uh, Quoted in 1 Corinthians 15, He must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. This is talking about the order of the resurrection. We dealt with that in our 1 Corinthians series. Uh, Ephesians 1.20. Ephesians 1.20. Flip over there. Let's look at that one with some comment. Ephesians 1. You know, uh, the Gentiles were divided into their uh, nations and languages and lands. And Israel was exalted as an earthly nation in the midst of the Gentile nations. But we're a heavenly people. There's never been a heavenly people that have occupied planet Earth the way the church does. And Ephesians 1 lays out the heavenly blessings that are ours in Christ. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, we're told, in Ephesians 1.3. And everything that he accomplished with his son and everything that the Father is doing, what a blessing that we understand what the Father is doing. He has a prayer here, Paul does, starting in verse 18, Ephesians 1.18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that uh, believers can understand what God is really doing so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. That those, that's the father. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? And uh, this is Paul's desire for the Ephesian church, a very well-taught church, but one that still needs to have their eyes enlightened to know these, uh, these deep things. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Again, this is the father through all of this which he, the Father, brought about in Christ, when he, the Father, raised him, Christ, from the dead, and seated him, Christ, at his, the Father's right hand, in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, those are all the angelic ranks, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. All right. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and, and don't uh, lose track of this, gave him his head over all things to the church. All right. The all things is stated there twice. He's he's, uh, all things are in subjection under his feet and head over all things to the church. We relate to the all things as well because we're in Christ. Hope we understand that which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So, is it important for Jesus to be seated at the right hand of the Father? Very important. Does it relate to Israel and the promises made to David? Yes. But does it relate to the church and the promises that relate to us? Yes. And we've got to understand both. And we can't blend the two. As it pertains to David, he's sitting there and waiting for enemies to be made a footstool. As it pertains to the church, he's already interceding for us and and all things are under uh, subjection to us in the church. I hope you understand there's a difference with respect to that. We're not conquering this world. Israel will. Okay. The operation footstool is not related to the church. It's related to Israel and the Davidic throne. And, And... If we have more questions on this, I'll be glad to expand on it. We've got question and answers tonight. But see, this is the very scripture that Dallas Seminary, that ruined Dallas Seminary. I'll tell you that right now. Whenever that was, 20 years ago? When they went to progressive dispensationalism, when they abandoned their distinctions between Israel and the church. Okay? Because they tell you that when he took his seat at the right hand of the Father, that that is the same thing as the Davidic throne. And that he is now applying the Davidic covenant to the church, through the church, to this world. Okay? And it is a terrible blending of Israel and the church. It's an absolute compromise with covenant theology. It's, it's sad that the Dallas guys don't seem to know that because the covenant guys are laughing at them. The covenant guys are admitting, hey, they, they've caved, they've come to our side. And it's true. Because they've blended Israel and the church. They've confused the throne in heaven with the throne on earth. The kingdom's not on earth yet. The kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not on earth yet. The bride's on earth. But the king isn't on earth. And the throne in heaven is not David's throne. David's throne will be in Jerusalem when it gets reinstituted. David's throne is still vacant. So, Colossians 3 1 We've been raised up with Christ. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. We are a heavenly-minded people. And then a whole string of things in Hebrews. Hebrews 1, verse 3, verse 13. Hebrews 8, Hebrews 10, verses 12 and 13. Hebrews 12, 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. So those are all the uses of Psalm 110, verse 1 in our New Testament. And then, as I said, verse 4 has seven additional New Testament allusions about you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And uh, references there, I think it's alluded to, In John 12, when the crowd says, well, Christ is supposed to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And then uh, six times in the book of Hebrews, we have this priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The priest according to Melchizedek. We've got to understand what that's about. What's that Melchizedek priesthood about? That's a separate development. We're not going to deal with it in this class because we're just looking at verse 1 in this class about David calling him Lord. Uh, but the issues about the Melchizedek priesthood, we're going to have to really, uh, either in Glenn Carnegie's Hebrew series or one of our own at some point, I'm hoping that we're going to develop a, a, a full Melchizedek priesthood doctrine that we can uh, make application of very quickly. So this is the kind of thing you can look at. This is one of my more fun resources. Most of them are kind of like this. You know, you got a psalm and there's only one place in the New Testament. Um, yeah. But, boy, when you get to Psalm 110, man, there's a dozen places where it gets used. All right. Yeah, that's one of my favorite little tools in the Logos software. All right. That's a good resource, by the way. You can just go Old Testament passage, chapter by chapter by chapter, and then see where it's used in the New Testament. There's a companion volume to that where you go chapter by chapter through the New Testament, and it shows you all of the Old Testament quotations that are contained there so you can work it either direction as far as that goes all right point b the messianic context of psalm 110 is accepted by jesus and the pharisees the messianic context of psalm 110 is accepted by jesus and the pharisees now i know it's been about 20 minutes since i said join me in psalm 110 so let's look at it <laughs> all right We read all seven verses. Here's my question. It's kind of interesting. Does the word Messiah appear anywhere in this chapter? Actually, it doesn't. Seven verses and not once does Mashiach appear. There's no Messiah in the Hebrew text. There's no Christos in the Greek Septuagint text. And yet, it is at face value a Messianic passage. There's no question that when he references Adonai here, he's referencing the Messiah. He's referencing the coming king, the, the one to whom the scepter belongs. So it doesn't have to have the term Christ in order to be messianic. And uh, the rabbis all understood from intertestamental time into New Testament times and even beyond into the Babylonian uh, Talmud, the writing of the Talmud, on into medieval Judaism, uh, on into uh, modern, what we call uh, modern Judaism, all right? Um, this is Messianic, and no one disputes that. He says, whose son is the Christ? Son of David. Well, then, how does David call him Lord? In uh, Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord. If he's his son, how does he call him my Lord, right? And we'll, uh, we'll have some fun with this, because we... Uh, we don't use this language. We, 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 we call somebody sir or ma'am, right? But if we were to go to England, we would have to start using phrases like my lord, okay, my lady, your grace, your majesty, okay? Different honorifics that are assigned depending upon your rank, depending upon uh, the, the, the system of the, of the peerage, for example, and nobility, has one form of address, royalty has a higher form of address, and so forth. Um, that's alien in our culture because by our constitution and by our founding, uh, the founding fathers said our nation will have none of that. We will have no dukes, we will have no princes, we will have no um, honors that are passed you know, to, from father to son, or anything of that nature. But my Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, Jehovah said to Adonai sit at my right hand. So recognize when the Pharisees accept the premise of the question they are agreeing with the premise of the question. This is Christological. This is messianic. This is messianic. This psalm is messianic. This psalm is looking to the coming of the Messiah. And they do not disp- they do not dispute that they cannot dispute that. If there's some liberals today that want to dispute it um, just let them know that the, the Pharisees are bigger Bible experts than they'll ever be, and they can abandon their liberal theology and say, no, they knew what they were talking about. Jesus knew what he was talking about. And if you want to dispute that uh, the psalm is messianic, then you have a different view than what Jesus had regarding this uh, this passage. All right, it starts, on point C, it starts with the psalm of David. We're told in the manuscripts, Le Mizmor. It's a mizmor. Mizmor is one of those uh, like salah or maskil, or there's a lot of musical terms in Hebrew that we don't totally understand. Uh, this one we do better with because the verb zamer and some other uh, cognate nouns. But um, a mizmor is a, specifically, it is a, uh, a musical piece that has both music, that is instrumental music and s- vocals and singing. So it is actually, it is a song with both instrumentation and vocal lyrics. And uh, as opposed to other Psalms that, uh, that are to be done a cappella, that are to be done without instrumentation. Uh, we have other uh, like, you know, chants or uh, other um, type music. If, uh, if Israel had some instrumental pieces that had no lyrics, it's unfortunate that, uh, that they could not be preserved for us in the book of Psalms. Because, think about it, every, every psalm has, that has words. <laughs> if it didn't have words, how would it be put in our Bibles, in the book of Psalms? You know what I'm saying? So, it's conceivable that they also had some instrumental pieces with their, with their uh, worship, uh, but we have uh, no way to know they weren't not inspired in the, uh, in the text. There are 57 of the Psalms that have uh, the Mismore title in the heading, so that's more than a third of our book of Psalms. Uh, I think it's the most common of the different types. And um, the Davidic authorship accepted by both Jesus and the Pharisees. There's the second thing. Uh, a liberal today might say, well, David didn't write that, that was somebody else. Okay, that was somebody. It was some musician after David. Maybe in fact, there are some liberals I think that this is talking about David. That uh, the Lord said to my Lord and my Lord, there is David, that or Solomon. There's some liberals I think that that Jehovah said to Solomon, sit at my right hand, or the Lord said to David, sit at my right hand, and they 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 kind of try to remove all the messianic expectations, okay, out of this, out of this song, which is just insane. All right. Davidic authorship was accepted by Jesus and the Pharisees. Now we have two words for Lord, Yahweh and Adonai. Yahweh, and Ad, or Jehovah, if you prefer that pronunciation. I'm, I'm ambivalent. I tend to do Yahweh more than Jehovah. Y-H-W-H. And he didn't just say to Adonai, he made utterance. He um, declared authoritatively. I'm going to break down all of this grammar here for you shortly. But um, Jehovah made utterance, declared authoritatively to Adonai. Sit on my right. It's not a normal word for saying. It's not the Hebrew amir, where just, you know, the Lord said, David said. It's not just said. Okay. Breaks my heart that it just says, says, declares, comes closer, uttered because the the, the noun that comes from this verb is our word for utterance, prophetic utterance. This is actually a a declaration of divine uh, revelation. Two words for Lord. We start with Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. We've spoken on this several times. This should be an old friend to each one of us, hopefully. Y-H-W-H. This is the most holy name of... That God has. God's got some, you know, 20 or 30 different names in the Old Testament. Uh, But this is his personal name. This is his covenant name with Israel. Uh, This name was known prior to Moses. But when God was calling Moses to redeem Israel out of Egypt and Moses said, well, who shall I say sent me? He revealed the I am meaning uh, at that time and, and commissioned Abraham or commissioned Moses to say that I am has sent me. And uh, the I am being the meaning behind Yahweh. Uh, but Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, is, uh, was so holy they wouldn't even pronounce it. To this day, a devout Jewish person will not speak the name Yahweh or Jehovah. Okay? They just won't speak it. They'll see it. Their eyes will see it in the text as they're reading. And so instead of reading Yahweh, they will read Adonai. They will substitute Adonai in its place which is a little bit difficult in a passage like this, because then they have to say, Adonai says to Adonai, right? Yet they do, and they do, and they, they understand what's happening there as they say it, that this is, in fact, God speaking to God, that the Christ is God, okay? There's actually a, a, a built-in understanding of Trinity in this, you know, the idea that there's God the Father, there's God the Son, and then, of course, there's God the Holy Spirit. Who may even be in view if, if he's in fact the agent of the utterance. Because David spoke by the Holy Spirit. We 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 read that earlier in this hour. So if David speaks by the Holy Spirit and Jehovah says to Adonai, there's a complete trinity at work in this in this message. You want to do a word study on Jehovah, have fun. Six thousand five hundred and nineteen occurrences in the Old Testament. I think there's nothing that has more until you get to the Thus, right, the and, okay, you know, other than definite articles and conjunctions, I don't believe there's any word in the Old Testament that occurs as often as Yahweh. Uh, and it, it's, it's actually so common when Str- when James Strong's put his concordance together, he actually assigned two numbers to Yahweh. 3068 is the, the common number, but then the one right after that, 3069, he also assigned to a to Yahweh. Uh, But Yahweh with a slightly different uh, vowel pointing. Um, And so there's 305 of those. And uh, those are places in the Old Testament where you have combined a hyphenated name where you have Yahweh Adonai or Adonai Yahweh, okay, Lord God. And uh, and there are 305 places where they, they appear together, the Lord God said, the Adonai Yahweh said, okay, in which case, Again, a devout Jewish person who can't pronounce, who can't utter the word Yahweh is left saying Adonai, Adonai. Uh, But in that case, uh, they do uh, slightly, uh, they change the pointing on the vowels uh, for Yahweh. And so Strong's went ahead, James Strong's went ahead and made that a a different number, 3069. But it's the same Yahweh term, okay? Meaning I am the self-existent one, the only one that does not have a cause, The only being in this universe without beginning, without end, who is the eternal is, the eternal am, he is, I am. No cause, no end, no beginning, right? Everything else has a cause, everything else has a beginning, except God himself. And so the I am is the uh, meaning underneath the name of Yahweh. And then Adonai. A D O N A Y. Adonai. A D O N A Y. Adonai. It's a plural. It, uh, it comes from adon, the singular. And um, it's also a possessive. Beyond being a plural, it's a possessive. The I ending means my. My Lord, not just Lord, but my Lord. And um, we'll talk about this more next week as we discuss how, like Elohim, Elohim is a plural noun, but Elohim, when it's used of God, the one true God of Israel, when it's used of God, even though it's a plural noun, it will always use singular verbs and adjectives, right? God is, um, with, with single verbs. You don't say the gods are. It's Elohim is with a singular verb, right? Am I making sense? I'll come back to this next week. Uh, Adonai is the same way. Adonai is a plural, but it will always have singular verbs and singular um, adjectives and singular articles and so forth when it's pertaining to the real God. Okay? If it's referring to plural lords, uh, typically human being lords, then you'll then use plural verbs. See, and if that just went all over your head then don't worry about it because <laughs> let's be honest um we're primarily english speakers english thinkers and we don't much we don't have an inflected language okay not like spanish or french or any inflected language we got to match your your nouns to your to your adjectives you're going to match the singulars and, but we still have singular and plurals okay we say i am we say we are right um he is, they are. So we have differences there. We can understand that. But we would never say Adonai are. We would say Adonai is. Okay. Um, yeah, that might be a better way of thinking about that. Even as a plural noun, it's always used as a singularity with the reference that, of course, Adonai is one God. The Lord your God is one God. So. Uh, but both terms are used here. When we come back next week, we'll break it down and we'll see the uh, promise of the uh, what the Father is going to deal with with the enemies. We're going to see the other things here about the scepter ruling in the midst of your enemies. And then we're going to see how, look at verse 3 and think about this between now and next Wednesday. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. That there's going to be some time, it's going to take a while <laughs> for that second advent to take place. Because this sitting at the right hand of the Father is going to be a prolonged circumstance. Uh, because right now, at first Advent, Israel is not going to accept their Christ. Israel is not going to volunteer freely. And this isn't really the day of his power. This is the day of his humility. This is the day of his, of his suffering. And yet, second Advent, the day of your power, is going to uh, your people will volunteer freely. Will volunteer freely. So think about that between now and next week and when we come back we will uh, have more to say on uh, on this promise here to Israel. Thank you Father for your truth, for your faithfulness. Thank you for this study. Thank you for the uh, the privilege that we have, Father, to uh to take a look at the text, to understand differences between Yahweh and Adonai and Father to uh, recognize that that uh, scripture is God-breathed and profitable and that we have to rightly divide the word of truth and it's important, Father. Um, you have reasons for using Yahweh in some places and Adonai in other places. You have reasons when you use agape in some places and phileo in other places. Father, um, we need to understand these distinctions. We can't just blur everything together in kind of a a general confusion. Uh, Father, you make distinctions between Israel and the church. And we need to recognize that. And we need to, to keep them distinct and separate and understand that one is an earthly people with an earthly destiny and one is a heavenly people with a heavenly destiny. And so, Father, um, I pray that as we study that you would um, bless our desires to know the truth and that you would honor our commitment to studying to show ourselves approved and that, Father, you would teach us clearly how uh, how to rightly divide as you would have us to do so. Thank you for the example of our Savior. Thank you that with the Sadducees, with the Pharisees, with everybody, he goes back to the text and he breaks it down. And he exegesis and he he leaves it with his critics to say, well, how does this work? How does he call his son his Lord? And he makes them answer it, Father. And so I just thank you for that example. And I pray that we would never, never lose our first love, that we would never uh, forsake what really is uh, what sets this ministry apart, Father, that we have a reverence for your word and we want to know every jot, every tittle, Father. And I thank you in Christ's name. Amen.